All right, my name is Judd Devermont. I am the uh, director of the Afri Africa program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And it's my honor to welcome you to uh, our panel today, Rethinking Nigeria's Response to Boko Haram. Excuse me, we'll get that later. Um, Someone will get it. Okay. Thank you. Um, so Nigeria has been reeling from this conflict in Northeast region for 15 plus years. The government, and I think we can count all four of the past civilian presidents, have been terribly uneven in the response. At times, I think we've seen indifference, and at times we've seen deeply problematic responses, including extrajudicial killings. Uh, at other points, I would argue the government's actually been engaged and, and thought about trying to address some of the, or talked about addressing some of the underlying drivers and trying to curb abuses when the government's been under political pressure. Um, they've even broken some taboos uh, in Nigerian history and allowing uh, foreign neighboring governments and militaries to come in. But it's my view that this inconsistency has been really unhelpful and some of the experimentation that has gone on in the response uh, has been problematic, including the establishment of garrison towns where populations are, uh, are encouraged to resettle and that hasn't contributed to a peaceful resolution. In addition, consistent with the theme of today's larger event uh, is the access for humanitarian workers. According to the task force report that I'm sure all of you have read, um, 800,000 people remain inaccessible in Northeast Nigeria. There was also an ICRC report just recently this month that said that 22,000 people are missing due to the conflict. So today we're gonna try to do two things, just two. We're gonna try to have uh, a shared understanding of the conflict, its origins and its status today. Now we want to explore why the conflict endures, what's the impact of Nigerians in the region, and what are the challenges that, that poses towards humanitarian responders. And second, we're going to discuss what kind of shifts uh, is possible for the Nigerian approach. Uh, how can political incentives change for various actors at the national level, at the state level, um, at the non-state level uh, to improve outcomes. And of course, we're gonna talk about what's the role uh, for humanitarian workers in foreign governments. I'm really fortunate today to be joined by uh, four exceptional experts, uh, people who I've worked with and admired for years. So I'm gonna do quick, quick introductions and then we will jump right into the, the questions. So, uh, Brandon Kenhammer is an Associate Professor and Director of International Development Studies Program at Ohio University. Last year he published a book on Boko Haram, entitled Boko Haram, uh, with Carmen McCain, and only a few years earlier he published one of my favorite books, uh, Muslims Talking Politics, Islam, Democracy, and the Law in Northern Nigeria. Brandon's really one of our most foremost scholars on Northern Nigeria. I've had the privilege of sharing insights with him, arguing with him, uh, debating with him. Uh, it's always uh, one of the best parts of my year, so I'm, I'm thrilled to have him here. Uh, on the other side is, uh, is Daphna Rand. She is the Vice President for Policy and Research at Mercy Corps. Daphna leads the policy and advocacy research teams and is responsible for Mercy Corps' effort uh, to influence practice across multi, uh, global institutions. Daphna previously served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor at the U.S. Department of State. She was also a director at the National Security Council. That's where we first met, and we caused all sorts of havoc, uh, conspiring together to address some democracy and governance and stabilization issues. So it's a pleasure to have Daphna here. Alex Lascaris. 
uh, is uh, at, on the faculty at the, Nor at the National War College. He was previously the deputy commander uh, for civil and military engagement at US Africa Command. Alex served as the ambassador to Guinea from 2012 to 2015 and has a wealth of experience on the continent, including tours uh, in Liberia, Botswana, Angola, and Burundi. Um, I should say here, of course, that Alex is speaking in his private capacity and does not represent the views of the US government. Alex, I think, as you'll see today, is one of the most thoughtful, well-read diplomats in the Foreign Service. I can tell you that briefing him uh, is one of the most nerve-wracking but rewarding experiences you can have, and we will try to get him not to talk about 19th century anti-French colonial wars. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, uh, Fatih Abubakar is an independent photographer who documents everyday life in the, her hometown of Maduguri in Borno State, Nigeria. Her postings as bits of Borno on social media has received critical acclaim and has been covered in media outlets including the New York Times, the BBC, Reuters, CNN, Voice of America, Newsweek, Africa as a Country, and Nigerian papers such as This Day. I'm a huge admirer of Fatih's work. It's been a delight to meet her. She was on our podcast this morning. Wait two weeks. You're going to love it. Uh, it's really, it's an it was, it's a incredible conversation and we're really happy to have her here. So why don't we jump right into the moderated questions and then we'll turn to the audience. And I'll start with Brandon. Boko has been active in Northeast Nigeria for more than 15 years. Cycled through leaders, split into factions, expanded and contracted in its territorial reach. What's the current state of play? And in your judgment, what accounts for Boko and ISIS West Africa's resilience? Well, yeah, thanks, Judd. Um, and thanks, everybody, for, for coming today. Um, so. Uh, by most measures, and I, I, th I think it's fair to say this, that the military and humanitarian terrain is not as bad as it was in 2015, which is sort of the high water mark. Um, but the situation is degrading, I think, militarily once again over the last year or so. And that as a result, there's also been less progress on the humanitarian side than there could have been given the sort of softening in some ways of the, the conflict. Um, now, any discussion of why things are the way that they are right now, um, of why Boko Haram and Iswa have been able to continue to press the region's militaries, um, needs to look at both sides, right? It's a story about those groups, but it's also a story about the response to those groups. And I'll start with Boko Haram and Iswa. So the thing that both of those groups have um, and going back to before there were two of them, um, is that they've both proven really incredibly adaptable in the face of changing conditions. Right? And this has been kind of a unique um, way in which those groups have both been able to thrive, relatively speaking, given the, the, the level of response. Um, jihadis in the region have learned a lot of lessons about what works and what doesn't. Um, and really, with the exception of kind of the entrenchment of the so-called Caliphate in Gaza in 2014-2015, I think one lesson that they've learned especially well is not to put down the kind of roots that make them vulnerable to the kind of kinetic efforts that the Nigerian military wants to engage in. Um, this means that the kind of most recent developments, right, these, this sort of super camp strategy, um, sort of looks to me from the outside as evidence that in some ways ISWA has gotten what it wants, right? That its attacks on forward operating posts and bases have essentially created a situation in which they are able to move much more freely than they were previously. Um, so this seems like a dangerous outcome to me. Um, you know, layering back, right, um, 
there was a lot of confidence on the part of the Nigerian military for a while that the differences between these two groups would sort of drive a situation in which they would attack each other, that they could, I've heard Nigerian military officials talk about it in this way, that we can sit back and let them destroy these, each other. That's clearly also not going to happen. Whatever their differences are, and I take them to be significant, it seems pretty clear that that's not what's going on, right? That they're able to not cooperate. You'll occasionally hear analysts talk about the impending cooperation between all of the different factions, and that doesn't seem forthcoming either, um, but they're clearly not diminishing each other's capacity to act. Okay, now the other side is the Nigerian military and government side, and here's where I think a lot of the action is. Um, I certainly don't want to diminish the bravery of Nigeria's fighting men and women, but if we're being entirely blunt, tactically, strategically, logistically, and politically, um, the entire counterterrorism and CVE enterprise in Nigeria has been a pretty big failure over the last 15 years. And I say that as someone who's been working in Nigeria, northern Nigeria, for about 15 years. Um, on the military side, I think it would be fair to describe um, the Nigerian military as having been slow to recognize changes in the state of play and to adopt their strategies, um, that they've been slow to adopt more effective tactics in the face of um, encounters in the field, particularly with Iswan the last couple of years, um, that they have largely not been effective in building trust um, and sort of ongoing engagement with local authorities and communities. Um, and I've, I've, I've heard this in interviews with, with emirs in, in Borno State um, and talking to other people. Um, and that they have been unable to prevent the emergence of a messy and very lucrative war economy in the northeastern part of Nigeria. Um, they are also, and, and again, I feel like I can say this frankly, um, often incredibly defensive about critique, and so that that makes it often very difficult to assimilate even well-meaning sort of efforts to change what they're doing strategically. On the political side, um, the sort of headline here, and I know that Judd's gonna ask me a question about this later, so I don't wanna steal too much. Um, there has really been a failure to build a national political coalition around the seriousness of the conflict and around kind of a major investment or push to do anything about it. Um, the depth of the challenge, and this was kind of the subject of our book in 2018, the depth of the challenge in the northeastern part of Nigeria is not well understood by people outside of northeastern Nigeria. Um, the, the conflict does not affect a lot of Nigerians on a daily basis, and as a result, um, along with kind of other baked-in factors in Nigerian federalism and the Nigerian political scene has made it very difficult to kind of marshal a national consensus around the conflict. Um, and in the last few years, the emergence of other equally pressing security issues has, I think, really moved this down the priority list for a lot of people in Abuja. Um, and that's frankly terrifying given how bad things are. Um, another thing that we wrote about in the book that I think is really important is, um, the political system has really contributed to a proliferation of conspiracy theories, both among leading Nigerian officials and among the general population about what's going on in Nigeria, uh, in northeastern Nigeria, and this has been really destructive. So not a lot of good news here. Thanks, Brandon. I think that's a great state of play, and I want to turn to Daphna because Mercy Corps has written some exceptional reports on Boko Haram. I know Alex and I are both a big fan of how of your analysis on how Boko Haram recruits. And I think it would be useful, A, if you have anything to add to what, uh, what Brandon said, but uh, maybe a, a picture of the humanitarian situation. Um, we talk in the report uh, about garrison towns. That would be really helpful. Thanks so much, and thanks to CSAS for your excellent work on this report. Our CEO of Mercy Corps, Neil Kenny Geyer, was one of the task force members, and we're just so pleased with the results and also the process of bringing so many different 
uh, stakeholders together. Um, I'm thrilled to be here with all of you. I want to answer both parts. I want to talk a little bit about the, what our research has shown, but also start a bit just filling out the humanitarian assessment, that giving you guys a sense of what it's like um, for the people in northeastern Nigeria. You know, there are 13.4 million people living in the three states. Um, and 7.1, so half of the population, are in need of humanitarian aid by all estimates. It's probably more than that. Um, there are 4 million people in Borno itself who are in need of, of assistance, and Borno is where the most intense humanitarian crisis uh, continues to endure. You know, 2 million people across these three states have fled their home. That is a very high percentage of IDPs, uh, and I'll talk about that in a sec. Thousands have been killed. Um, and this past summer, I would just note that many, many humanitarian operators are, are deeply concerned by the outbreak of cholera in the camps. That's a, of concern to all the humanitarian uh, groups that are working there, including ours. Um, and I should, should just add that Mercy Corps has been in Northeast Nigeria since 2012. We have a large team. Our team is 96% um, Nigerians themselves, and they're very brave humanitarian workers, and I'm happy to answer questions of what, about what they're doing. But I would just want to uh, you know, drill down on these questions of the garrison towns and the humanitarian implications. So basically, this is an agricultural-based economy. These people were farmers, and so the, the effects of moving people away from their farmland has had devastating economic outcomes. Now, we give humanitarian assistance. We give relief. We give food. We give water. And we give even more than that. Um, but we cannot replace the livelihoods of people who have been disconnected from, from their crops and from their lands. And that is a significant concern to us as humanitarians who are also working for most of our portfolio on the recovery side, on the livelihood side, on helping these communities create uh, markets again. Um, so I would add that. And then I would add just, you know, obviously the overcrowding in the towns is of serious concern from a health perspective, um, from a radicalization perspective, from an education perspective, and because of the large number of youth in the garrison towns. And then finally, I would just say in terms of the humanitarian picture, we believe there's over 800,000 people who are not being accessed, just individuals beyond the reach because of the geography. And that's a deep concern when there's just inaccessibility to individuals. All right, in terms of the research, um, there's been a lot of research done on the sort of reasons individuals would join and be recruited into Boko Haram and other armed groups. We've written a few papers, and I am being told by my team in Nigeria to caveat that these reports were finished in 2015 and 2016, and this is a rapidly evolving situation. So our, um, our efforts to more methodologically analyze uh, through interviews and public opinion surveys and focus groups for two to three years in the 2014 to 2016 period, the reasons individuals were drawn to Boko Haram have evolved a bit. So with that caveat, I'd just like to talk about the findings from two specific reports that we've written. One is called Motivations and Empty Promises. Um, and we asked over 100 youth um, what their, the appeal of the non-state armed groups was. And we found across the board consistent findings. And I'll just give you four of the findings. First, there's no one demographic, demographic profile of a Boko Haram recruit, right? They came from diverse backgrounds. Some had jobs, some didn't. Some attended secular schools, some didn't. Islamic schools, some had dropped out. So there was no consistency in the analysis there. Um, second, influence from social and business peers was a, very, was a key indicator. So rather, you know, the hypothesis was that it's an ideological inclination to join, but rather all of the former members, and we talked to former members of BOCO, um, cited a, a peer or someone they were working with who had brought them on. 
Um, and third, and relatedly, youth saw an opportunity to get ahead from a business perspective through joining. They described accepting loans prior to joining, joining with the hope of gaining loans or capital for informal businesses, um, loans that fuel their own academic ambitions. Um, and then finally, and this, you know, we all know at this point, but it was clear across the board that broad frustration with governance and government created communal acceptance of Boko Haram. This was uh, described in different ways by different people, but the grievance around government inadequacies, specifically security abuse by the security sector, um, but also the lack of delivery of services created and generated grievance. And then we followed up on this sort of broad report by zooming in on this question of graft and business transactions, because that had been one of the findings from the 2015 report that really struck us. So in 2016, we published another paper called Gifts and Grafts, and I commend our authors in both Nigeria and here in Washington for this great work. And we really looked at these connections financially, and we found that the Boko Haram financial services provided more than money. They offered the promise of a protection network and opportunity. And so many of our, the people we interviewed um, and our respondents in our research talked about this financial support mechanism, um, and it was sort of like a protection scheme almost, and that was what was described again and again. Um, and we also, finally, and I think this is maybe obvious to people in the room, but we found it in 2016 to be quite striking how much communities saw Boko Haram as a financial services network, as an alternative to, you know, the non-existing um, uh, financial services that they, they were otherwise available. So they reported knowing of no other viable alternatives to access cash or credit other than the options that Boko Haram was offering. Um, and they just discussed the way in which these uh, access to finance would, could, again, enable economic ambitions. So I'll leave there, and then you know, we can talk more about it. But those were the bulk of the findings from our, our research. Thanks, Stefna. So we're, we're building a complex picture for you. And uh, Alex, I think both Daphna and Brandon have kind of alluded to the deep distrust in the government. What's your assessment on the role of the military, excuse me, the role of the military in providing security and what kind of role do you think the military should or should not play in the humanitarian assistance response? Okay, thanks, Judd. Let me reiterate that uh, I left AFRICOM on June 1st, and I've been at the National War College as a faculty member uh, since then, enjoying for the first time in my career academic freedom, uh, <laughs> which uh, maybe this, having been prohibited for so long from speaking my mind, perhaps I'm going to go overboard. So let me just reiterate that, that I am here in my personal capacity, and my views do not necessarily represent those of, of the US government. Um, the Nigerian army, like the Nigerian state, and like a very large portion of the Nigerian population in general, view civilians who live in areas under the control of Boko Haram as the enemy. They view them with hostility. Uh, my experience is also that the Nigerian army like the Nigerian state, like a vast majority of the Nigerian people, and we know this through very good polling data, turns out Nigeria is the easiest place in the world to do public opinion research, because if you ask a Nigerian his, his or her opinion, they just won't stop <laughs> giving it to you. Uh, the state, the army, and the people tend to view the work of the humanitarian community in trying to provide humanitarian assistance across the line into Boko-controlled areas as an act of hostility, as aiding the enemy. To a certain extent, they are right. We all know this who've worked in humanitarian emergencies where you have to cross the line between government and insurgent forces, that it is, it is not a neutral act in terms of the, the, the politics involved to cross the line and provide humanitarian assistance to people under the, the control of a hostile uh, insurgency or terrorist group or faction. 
we as the US government, we as AFRICOM, decided notwithstanding that, the moral imperative, the humanitarian imperative to provide those services across the line uh, is sufficiently compelling that we will accept uh, the political fallout or, or the, the, the threat to our interests, whether it is in Somalia uh, with Al-Shabaab, whether it's in parts of the Sahel, uh, whether it's in the, in the Lake Chad Basin. Um, it would have been a very hard sell to get the Nigerian army to adopt a liberal model uh, of counterinsurgency in the best of circumstances. Uh, what we did not calculate, what we did not anticipate was even the, the Nigerian army does not even have the recourse to an illiberal model of counterinsurgency. And I think, you know, we went into the Boko uh, region as a result of the Chaibok kidnapping, thinking we were getting into a hostage rescue uh, mission. Then we went into, essentially it was a counterinsurgency, thinking that our Nigerian partners lacked certain niche capacities, whether it was intelligence uh, or ISR. And if we could just meet a few specific niches, this juggernaut that we all remembered from Liberia and Ekambag, where I did my first tour in the 1990s, uh, would have no trouble taking care of this podunk little insurgency in a, in a marginal part of the country. Uh, we were wrong. The Nigerian army instead adopted what I think an Africanist would, would refer to as the Lord Kitchener model of counterinsurgency from the Boer War with one critical difference. Uh, as you may recall, Lord Kitchener, the British commander in the Boer War, could not break the back of the Africana Rebellion, so he took all the women and children, put them in concentration camps, created the word concentration camp, and proceeded to let them die of typhoid until that broke the back of, of the, uh, the Africana Rebellion in the early 20th century. The critical difference in Nigeria is the Nigerians didn't succeed at doing it, whereas arguably Kitchener did succeed. Now, I'm not endorsing the moral tactics of the concentration camp, but my point is we have a Nigerian military establishment that lacks the capacity for either liberal or illiberal counterinsurgency. And why is that? Well, what we discovered is the Nigerian army is atrophied down to 70,000 uh, troops spread out over a dozen or to 14 named operations within their territory, uh, looking at a critical situation in Sokoto and Zamfara state, looking at larger violence in the Middle Belt region, looking at a persistent uh, insurgent threat in the Delta, uh, and there's a triage going on of we can only afford so many resources uh, for the Northeast. Now, the resources they have deployed uh, have been insufficient. Uh, the forces generally have been poorly led. You know, at the end of every engagement where the Nigerian army is, is chased out of its positions between Maduguri and the Kumaduga River, uh, we asked some elemental questions. Where were the officers? Well, they were nowhere to be found. Uh, where were the supplies? Well, they had been diverted. Did the troops have ammunition? No, uh, they had one magazine each. Uh, if, if that, okay, how long were the deployments? Well, these deployments were indefinite. Soldiers had been sent out for three years and sent into the middle of, uh, of nowhere, at least in their terms. Uh, when was the last time they had received food or water? And the answer is seldom to never. Uh, it's unreasonable to expect soldiers like that to fight at all. And to a certain extent, it's unreasonable to accept them to fight by the rules uh, that you and I would, would demand of our fellow soldiers. Uh, so I actually timed myself. Uh, so that's five minutes. Is that? That was Did great. that begin to answer? Was, and I ended up speaking in my personal capacity. It's personal capacity. <laughs> All right, Fatih, this is your chance to tell uh, the audience that these Americans don't know what they're talking about. Um, you know, your work, uh, the photos that you post, we talked about this in the podcast. Not only do you portray, I think, life in the shadow of Boko Haram, you show the resiliency of Nigerians uh, in, in Borno State, to love, to work, to study, to live. And 
I thought it would be helpful to sort of flesh out the, the, the other speakers. You know, what is life like um, with Boko Haram nearby? Does it affect the rhythm of daily life? You know, how, do you, how do you persist? How do you continue to thrive? Well, I'd like to start by saying that um, the Americans are right. You know, it is true all that you speak about, and but it is not the only truth, which is the focus of my work in highlighting the problems that exist in our community. I also wanted to highlight that they are other triumphs. There's a complete focus on the tragedy alone, but I feel like there's triumphs. There's necessary small steps we have taken towards tackling the insurgency are also a priority. So I'll start with you know how it affects the rhythm of life. Obviously, our economy is destroyed. We um, had a thriving border commercial. We bordered three countries, and it was a big business. There was cattle business, the farming business. Everything has deteriorated because there's lack of access to those regions. And also in terms of the education, for over two years during the heat of the crisis, children were not able to go to school, so there was an interrupted education. And also in terms of the humanitarian crisis, we have a mental health crisis. And uh, especially with the abduction of the Chibok girls, the Dabchi girls, currently what I was covering a month ago was um, the missing men, they, we have completely focused on the girls that were abducted, but we forget that men and boys were also abducted at the crisis and involuntarily you know, recruited into the sect, and they're being returned to camps and communities without proper rehabilitation. So that, for me, has also been a focus to complete, not only in a humanitarian uh, conflict, I would say, um, the focus should be both on men and women, and that has recently been what I've been covering. And also we have so many health issues, the epidemics, the cholera crisis that we have in camps. We, people sort of assume that it's only the bombs and the bullets that are killing people, but you know, losing everything, the trauma, your blood pressure, people are dying of heart attacks. So for me, I, despite covering all of that, I also go back to how it does not affect in the sense that we're seeing a rise in local activism. There are so many young women who are becoming activists discussing gender-based violence, and we're seeing them setting up NGOs. We have a skill acquisitions uh, center currently that is teaching young women and empowering them to sort of reintegrate into the community. And we're also sort of seeing the vigilante groups. There are over 28,000 young men who have decided sort of a neighborhood watch that are protecting communities from Boko Haram and are working side by side with the military to tackle that insurgency. So for me, it's uh, ultimately my number one priority to focus on the small you know, successes that we're having towards dealing with the conflict. Okay, we're gonna take the one more round of our speakers before we open it up, and I think I, I think you have a, a very nuanced view of the challenges uh, from a variety of different uh, access points and vantage points. But I, I want to talk about new directions, and uh, if there's one thing that I am proud to be a, a broken record about is that politics is an afterthought in the way we address these crises uh, across the world. Um, we focus on highly technocratic responses, uh, and we don't think about how political actors see the conflict and why they do or do not uh, respond in the ways that one would expect, um, despite all of our moralizing. And so uh, Brandon kind of alluded to this, but how do elites 
think about the crisis. And then to the sort of where we go next is, are there ways that we can change the calculus, whether it's at the, the federal level or state level or from just independent actors, as Fatih mentioned, so that we can actually have some positive change? Yeah, so um, I, as somebody who's tracked the, the American response to this conflict over the last 10 or so years, I mean, it, it, it often seems to me to be very clear that the American government has not sort of fully understood the incentive structures that exist in Nigerian politics. And I alluded to this before, um, but there is a profound lack of consensus nationally in Nigeria about the magnitude of the conflict, about what it means politically, who are the people who stand to lose and to benefit from the conflict. And as a result, the response has been kind of predictably flawed and incoherent. Um, in a lot of ways, and the entire structure of Nigerian politics since 1979 and the kind of current federal system dates with a few hiccups along the way, basically back to this bargain that was struck in the late 1970s, is set up to maximize the difficulty of dealing with a situation like the one that we've encountered. Which is to say that Nigerian politics incentivizes a certain kind of cooperation among elites. It incentivizes a cooperation around election time when you need to gather a nationally sufficient coalition to meet the electoral standards that allow you to run as a national party. Um, and it's the kind of institutional structure that creates a lot of opportunities for people to shake hands and be happy in Abuja. Um, but that also encourages people to sort of go home um, back to their local constituencies, politicians, and to sort of disregard any kind of sense of collaboration or national um, commitment to the same sorts of politics, to often engage in the worst sort of jingoism and ethnic baiting back in their home communities. Um, and so it's not surprising that this carries over then into the response to something like Boko Haram. Um, in particular, the Nigerian federal system, I think, encourages a deep distrust of any kind of expensive intervention that seems to benefit one region over another. And this goes back not just to the conflicts in the Delta, um, but really goes back to the allocation of federal oil money and the way in which that sort of shaped how people in, uh, how politicians in Nigeria think about sort of who's getting what from the federal government. Um, it has also meant that I think over the last four or five years, the conflict in the Northeast has begun to be filtered through kind of in some ways the more politically intransigent conflict between farmers and herders across um, the middle part of Nigeria in which you have kind of the resurgence of ethnic um, and, and, and religious uh, sort of approaches to thinking about who's in and who's not um, at the federal level and in local and state politics, sort of feeding back into the, the way in which the Boko Haram conflict is understood, um, which is to say that there is not a lot of commitment from people outside of the Northeast that this is such a big conflict that it requires a massive infusion of capital and commitment. I like to tell people, and Judd has heard me say this a number of times before, the presidential initiative on the Northeast committed less money to rebuilding the Northeast than my university gets from the state of Ohio every year. And we're mostly dependent on tuition these days, right? It's really an inadequate amount of money. And that reflects the level of commitment that exists nationally in Nigeria about this. On the military side, again, and I think that this is important as well, there is this deep-seated culture of defensiveness that drives a response to criticism from rights and humanitarian organizations. Um, when you see these incredibly aggressive responses to reports or to the actions of nonprofits and NGOs in northeastern Nigeria, this is really where this is coming from. But it gets back to what, what the ambassador was saying about this sense that, and you, you see it if you talk to Nigerian defense leaders, that they could handle this if only they were able to do it the way that they wanted to. If they were able to free themselves from the constraints, they, they've got this. And I, I think it's clear from what the ambassador is saying that, in fact, they don't. Um, 
But I've also been struck by, I've had the opportunity a couple of times over the last few years to talk to Nigerian defense officials in various kinds of programs um, on the American side, engaging them and offering training. And, and I'm often struck by the fact that when they're confronted sort of in a more, in a less combative setting with the findings, say, from the UNDP Pathways to Extremism Report, and you walk through it, this is what the evidence says about experiences of state violence people can become less defensive and seem like they're starting to pick up some of that, that they begin to recognize that there are other ways of thinking about how extremism operates and emerges. And I, I think that there are a lot of people in the Nigerian military who believe that what, for example, Lieutenant General Buratai said a few weeks ago in Maiduguri, that this is just criminality, that there's no ideological background to it, that this is just kind of random violence. I think there are a lot of people who know that that's not what's happening. And there are a lot of people who understand that to be a political claim rather than an analysis analysis of the conflict and that the kind of continued engagement that the U.S. defense community can have with Nigerian defense leaders remains important. It's useful, but it's slow, right? It's not going to turn around things in a year or two. Um, I would like to think, and this is where I'll end, that there is this sort of possibility of kind of a Madisonian solution to some of these problems too. I'm struck by the fact that there's almost no legislative oversight of the conflict in northeastern Nigeria, in Nigeria, um, that the Senate and the National Assembly have been largely absent in these conversations. And for those of you who work in capacity building on these issues, there are a number of wonderful, great Nigerian organizations that do this. That this is an opportunity here to sort of invoke the territoriality of people in the legislature, right? To say, you guys should have a stake in this too. There are opportunities for powerful people in Nigeria to question the way that the administration, this administration and previous administrations, and the military have handled these conflicts. But right now, they're really not being taken advantage of. So I'll end there. I think uh, that's a great suggestion. And for those of you who are following the 2019 election, when the opposition started raising some of the, the overruns of the bases, you saw the Nigerian federal government try to do some stuff, right? I mean, politics is going to motivate uh, the federal government, not necessarily the human toll or uh, pleading by the international community. But uh, Fatih, when, uh, when Brandon mentioned uh, the Chief of Army Staff's comment, I saw a really nice eye roll from you. So <laughs> let me ask you pretty much the same question about, from Brandon about sort of indifference from elites and what, what are, in your view, what are the ways that we can address this systematically? Well, I'd like to start by saying that the indifference is not just from the political elite, it's actually from everyday Nigerians also. When you go to Lagos, Abuja, Kaduna, there's just general, uh, you know, a, a non-challenge, I would say, oh, it's just happening in the Northeast. They sort of disconnect from uh, the Northeast and don't want to discuss that this is uh, going to affect all of us if we're not careful. And I feel like there's, in a way, there's no trust. I agree with you completely. The citizens have lost faith in the government at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level. I think that they have to work towards gaining that trust again by not mismanaging, by not embezzling uh, the funding, and also by involving young people who are very eager to perform but do not have access to the, uh, those at the state level. They're not in the decision-making roles. And also, we pre-colonially, and I think you, when you look at the history of in Borno, there have been administrations that are done at the local level with their traditional rulers that people are very much willing to listen to, but they have been relegated to the side by the state. So I think that role of bringing the traditional rulers back into the decision-making role there so that they can, you know, do things at their own 
in their own style, in their own traditional and local way that fits the local setting. And I feel young people, there are so many people who are interested in going into politics, but the obstacles still exist for young people, the, the amount of money you have to spend, etc. So I feel like we have to strengthen the ties between communities and also sort of work with, we have never, I would like for a town hall meeting, for example, to listen to the communities that you say that you're representing. Once the politicians move to Abuja, you hardly see them again till the election time. So that sort of disconnect between the political elite and the citizens is affecting all kinds of measures to ensure that we all work together. So for me, it's just let's unite again and let's all have hands on deck in a way to address the issue with everybody's concerns as opposed to just the Nigerian political elite deciding without input from the local communities. It's a great suggestion. Alex, again, in your personal capacity, um, what would you recommend uh, that the U.S. government and the international community do? And, and let's, we'll keep it broad. You could talk about military assistance or development or diplomacy. And, and is there an opportunity to shift the way the government thinks about the response? Look, there, there's, again, I realize I'm up here as a practitioner, not as an academic, but there's a very good French academic named Christian Senobo uh, who writes about Boko Haram as a Kanuri Budima grievance vehicle opposed to the houseification of the political economy of the Lake Chad Basin. Uh, I, think he, I think he's right. Uh, I, think, I think that is the better way to understand Boko, the Boko phenomenon than the sort of global ISIS uh, affiliate or, or anything else. Um, the implications of him being right, however, are that the Boko phenomenon is largely contained by cultural geography. And we saw Boko in its, in its heyday in 2015, 2016, move into non-Kanuri Budima areas in Adamawa and Yobe State, the, the Gwoza Hills region, where it was very easy militarily to reverse that progress. The populations who were not Kanuri Budima uh, were very eager to cooperate with the Nigerian military. And Boko was, was uh, pushed back into the areas, I would say, of its core constituency. Um, this is not a solution, but this is a way of saying that as long as the Boko phenomenon is, is contained, uh, the, certainly the level of interest in the United States uh, is, is also contained, but also it tells you that um, there are no quick fixes for the rot uh, of a once proud institution, the Nigerian military, the Nigerian state. And, and I think you have to understand we are dealing with uh, anyone who knows that Nigerians are like Americans, they're intensely proud of their country and they don't like, they criticize it to, the, to each other, they get very bitter and, and angry when outsiders criticize it back to them. Uh, and you're dealing with an, inst an institution that feels profoundly humiliated. So you do poking your finger in their chest and saying, you stink, you stink, you stink. There's a certain sinus clearing, uh, cathartic uh, return up, but that's, that's fleeting. But that, that makes, that renders you ineffective. So, uh, if the Boko phenomenon is contained by cultural geography, if it's, and I think the multinational joint task force has succeeded in, in erecting a cordon sanitaire to insulate Chad, Cameroon, and Niger, although I'm a little concerned about the different region of Niger, from the strategic level threat of Boko Haram, okay, that tells me uh, we have, I don't like to use the word luxury, but we have the luxury of being able to look at uh, a problem that has no short-term fixes, therefore it has long-term fixes. The long-term fixes are a pivot away from the provision of niche capacity to a counterinsurgency effort to trying to, to rebuild the foundation of the Nigerian security sector. 
Uh, this is from the military side, and, and obviously my USAID colleagues working in the local governance uh, areas have to do the same thing on, on, the, on the, the state administrative side. But looking purely from the military side, uh, you've got to rebuild the basic institutional capacity of the Nigerian military as the cohesive fighting force that landed in the Freeport of Monrovia in June of 1990 uh, in brigade strength, self-deployed, self-financed, brought other contingents in under its own logistical umbrella and did combined operations uh, and actually protected civilians. I, I was there at the time. I would never have written up the Nigerian army for the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, but the delta between what I saw in Nigeria, in, in Liberia in, in the early 1990s and what I saw in Maduguri in Borno State the last three and a half years, I've never seen a, a military degrade so fast so far uh, in peacetime. Um, and so, We've, and so I think we're trying to do this. We've got U.S. Army Africa uh, looking at long-term institutional development of the Nigerian army. But the, Bo the Boko phenomenon is here to stay uh, in, 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 the sh in the medium to long term. And what, you know, as we talk about humanitarian access, one of the things that we consistently asked of the Nigerian military and state to do is lift the ban on fish and pepper trades in the lake because it's as impoverishing the people uh, with no discernible tactical or strategic uh, impact in your behavior. And as a matter of fact, it was becoming, it was becoming apparent that it was, it was producing a counter effect, which is Boko Haram uh, rerouted commercial activity through areas it controls. Um, and this is sort of funny. They, they effectively lowered the rate of taxation uh, and raised revenues, which is funny that the Laffer curve was finally proven once and for all uh, in northeastern Nigeria. Um, but from a, from a US standpoint, we have to understand that, that we are not going to be the delta between strategic success and failure in Borno State, certainly not in the short term. So what, I think what that leaves, the, the option for us on the military side is pivot away from the day-to-day -day tactical fight in the Northeast back towards trying to rebuild what was once uh, not only a credible army, but to a certain extent a sub-regional hegemonic uh, army. And if you tell the Nigerians in those terms, hey, we want to get you back to where you were, it's a little easier, it go, the, the, the bitter medicine goes down a little easier than just saying, you stink, you stink, you stink. Uh, I think, Daphne, one of the, the challenges is that, that we're talking here about humanitarian access. So it depends on the lens, long-term versus short-term, but in either of those scenarios, the humanitarian access challenges remain. And so, um, it, I think to sort of wrap up this part of the panel before we go to audience Q&A, maybe uh, I'd like to hear some of your recommendations and, and maybe there's some best practices uh, that, that Mercy Corps has for how to deal with some of the access challenges. Great, thanks so much. And thanks to my co-panelists for their interesting thoughts. I thought before I just answer the question, we've elided a couple different terms here. So I thought it'd be good to clarify, Brandon and Alex have both talked about the uh, security sector and the Nigerian Armed Forces view towards NGOs. Um, there are a lot of challenges to access, but big NGOs like Mercy Corps and Care and our peers would not be there without the Nigerians accepting it, right? So it is not that blanket that the humanitarian service providers are considered an enemy. So just to add a little nuance there, we would absolutely not be able to um, operate on such a big scale across three states, uh, you know, working with, as I said, there's seven million people. I'm not the state department. I have to, yeah, I have anyway, to so, 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 right. So, so that is not true. And, you know, far be it for me to defend the Nigerian Armed Forces, but that just to be clear, the big service providers are there and they are operating. Um, with hundreds of millions of dollars of humanitarian aid being distributed. We're just one of the operators and we're working on food, as I mentioned, and hygiene and cash assistance and other forms of um, relief. Um, 
and just to separate that discussion from the response, as Brandon mentioned, to the IHL concerns and the human rights practices and the security sector abuse, which is a different set of NGOs who are working both at Capitol and internationally to improve the security sector response um, and accountability for uh, abuses by the armed forces when that happens. So it's two separate uh, humanitarian communities to some extent, just to make that clear. Um, so in terms of recommendations, you know, we've very, very, very strongly believe at Mercy Corps that the humanitarian response is insufficient. And, and I just, insufficient in the sense that that's just one level of intervention. And at the same time, we have to layer into the programming community and governance uh, resilience, for the lack of a better term. And this is, this is because one of the real challenges here is the, is the grievance and the suspiciousness between the communities in this part of Nigeria and the national level forces. So it's that suspiciousness and that tension that we're working on in addition to our humanitarian intervention. So for example, we have a program that's training groups of community leaders in some of these towns, garrison towns, other towns, to figure out how to advocate for various services, right? We need trash picked up, we need this, this and that. And so we've successfully done that, and that's been one of our most successful types of programs to help train individuals and groups to lead their communities to successfully um, negotiate with the government for services. And we've cr helped create these good governance committees all around northeastern Nigeria, and we're quite proud of their successes. And of course, after the humanitarian intervener and the intervention ends, they endure and they're sustained. And so, and then the second kind of programming that we are having some success with that's not a humanitarian program that we think is useful is this sort of disinformation space. Um, with the State Department grant, we're working on radio programs, including soap operas all over northeastern Nigeria. I don't know if you've heard any that are Mercy Corps soap operas, trying to explain to young people what it means to join an armed group, what happens, um, some, you know, having returnees go on the air and talk about their, their horrible experiences. So we're doing research on this project and we hope to be coming out with this research, but we, um, we have achieved 376 live pre-recorded radio segments on FM, and we're, we're finding that a lot of people are talking about our radio. So anyway, we're experimenting with this kind of public awareness campaign of the dangers of joining the armed groups. So we're, so just in terms of recommendation, I think it's very important that the U.S. government understand the humanitarian needs, understand the prerogatives, but also not forget the kind of community building, good governance, stabilization needs as well. And in the past couple U.S. government budgets, they've been zeroing out of the development funding for Nigeria, which is the the largest recipient of foreign aid in Africa. So this is a deep concern that we talk about the humanitarian needs and then we talk about the arc from recovery to, you know, from, from relief to recovery um, and then to stabilization, good governance and community building. Um, and this is sort of fundamentally the more longer term solution. Great, thanks Daphne. Okay, we've talked a lot, it's your turn. Um, you know, please uh, state your affiliation, your name affiliation, please ask a question. Uh, that means it has to end with a question mark, and uh, and we will uh, answer it to the best of our ability. So, floor is yours. In the front, right there. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait for that. Thank you, uh, Jenny McAvoy. Interaction. Um, thanks very much for for the remarks from the panel. Really edifying. Um, I've. Uh, I think everyone can hear me. I have a question. Oh dear. Uh, Jenny McAvoy, Interaction. Uh, my question is for Ambassador uh, Lascaris. Um, as much as I like your remedy um, and you know your your prescription for you know how to engage with the Nigerian Armed Forces, take the long view, and so on. Um, I don't think we will see uh, the Nigerian Armed Forces pull back uh, tactically, even though they, you know, we have seen some withdrawal from the FOBs. 
Um, and yet, the Nigerian armed forces are as much a threat to the civilian population as, as Boko Haram is. Um, from pervasive sexual assault, um, mistreatment in the IDP camps, restrictions on freedom of movement, restrictions on access to just resources, um, ability to find family members, return to their land, etc. Um, how how do you think humanitarian organizations can better engage with the Nigerian armed forces at any level to help moderate um, some of the some of these day-to-day -day issues and minimize the impact on the civilian population? Yeah, well, I think first of all, there are two separate humanitarian challenges. One is to deliver assistance uh, to communities in areas under the control of the government. Uh, that's hard enough. Uh, operating in Nigeria is just tough. Logistically, in the regulatory climate is difficult. Um, and there's a massive number of people in dire need in areas under the government control uh, where these, these difficult moral issues of working across lines uh, don't necessarily come into play. So I think all out focus on, on providing services to where you do have access. Um, I, as much, look, and we, we consistently ask our Nigerian partners allow humanitarian access across the lines into areas. Uh, of Boko control. Uh, they consistently refused. I don't have a lot of optimism that we can talk them out uh, of that course of action. I, I wish, it weren't, I wish it, that were not the case, but I, I just don't think uh, they're ready to receive that message. Now, so when I, when I say you pivot to a longer-term institution building the Nigerian military, that doesn't mean abandon the field uh, in the tactical fight. And, and my former commander, General Waldhauser, who sadly is retiring this week, uh, used to say, you always have to maintain pressure on the network. Uh, so you, you have to keep a tactical level military pressure on Boko Haram uh, so that it, it can't operate uh, with impunity, so it can't move about northeastern Nigeria completely unfettered. So the, the two are not mutually contradictory, and I'm certainly not advocating withdrawal from the tactical fight, but if, if you look at the record of the FOBs that were overrun uh, starting about a year ago, um, it was too easy for Boko Haram to chase the Nigerian army away from these positions. Um, and in many cases, uh, the Nigerian army outnumbered Boko Haram by a two to one or three to one uh, ratio. And again, you know, we, historically, we in the military look at the behavior uh, of senior leaders, but we started to look at the behavior of the soldiers. Um, and our senior NCO at the command asked the very ele elemental question of, if we didn't pay our soldiers, if we didn't feed our soldiers, if we didn't supply them, and if we deployed them for three years uh, nonstop in a war zone, would we have any, any reasonable expectation uh, that, they, that they fight, much less go on the offensive much, or defend themselves? And so, and so I think what the Nigerian army is going to have to do is consolidate uh, to better defend, defend defendable positions, uh, do a better job of supplying their troops, do a better job of rotating their troops, um, and do a better job of getting some sort of civil military connectivity back. And it's hard when you take a, take a, a conscript from Delta State or, or uh, the, the Middle Belt and send him or her up to Northeast Nigeria. It, it's an alien country. They don't speak the language. They don't know the culture. In many cases, they have a different religion. Um, and so one of, the, one of the alarming things about the situation is not just sort of the macro level hostility of the military to populations who they regard as sympathetic to Boko Haram, and who in many cases are sympathetic to Boko Haram. And we would ask the Nigerian military command, do civilians come to you to say Boko is coming, or do they come, go to Boko and say the army is coming? And they all said, no, they run to Boko Haram to say the army is coming. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. And, I, and let me, sorry, I'm going to digress a little bit. Uh, my father grew up in Civil War Greece, and one day 
communist insurgencies came into his village and started executing people for collaborating with the government. Six months later, uh, government uh, troops came into the village and started ex executing people for collaborating with the communists. So if you're a civilian, you can't win. Uh, if you, the, the act of staying somewhere is viewed, is going to be viewed as a hostile uh, act. And, I, and so I, I relate to the Nigerian civilians on, on an elemental basis for that reason. Um, I think a lot of the civilians are trapped in Boko areas. You know, there is a certain, there's a Robin Hood fallacy uh, with Boko Haram. Let's be clear, Boko Haram straps suicide bombs to 13-year-old girls and sends them into mosques uh, and markets. Boko Haram will, will murder any imam who preaches against them, will murder any government official, any school teacher uh, who dares speak out against them. So Boko Haram uh, is, a, is a thoroughly loathsome and reprehensible organization that, that, that does require a hybrid solution of physical removal from the battlefield of a small cadre of senior leaders, but also an exit ramp for the other 85 or 90 percent, who I think Mercy Corps has done a good job uh, of identifying. And I think we succeeded in Diffa and Niger, have not yet succeeded in Northeast Nigeria. Get the government to operationalize that distinction, that in, a, in any insurgency terrorist group, you've got a hardcore cadre of senior leaders who need to be removed from the battlefield, killed, captured, exiled, whatever. But the vast majority of people need to be allowed to re-enter uh, their societies, their communities, based on the indigenous traditions of that, of that community. So look, th this is not going to end in a clear victory. This is going to end in a messy hybrid. So if, if that's our basic analysis, let's start working towards that goal. So improve the ability of the Nigerian army to go after the leadership, but at the same time, improve the ability of the Nigerian army and the Nigerian state, Nigerian civil society, uh, to give the young people who Oxfam has done, I mean, who Mercy Corps has done a, such a good job of documenting, give them an option between death on the battlefield uh, and staying with Boko Haram. And that has to be the ability to defect and the ability to, to re-enter their lives, which most Nigerian civilians do not want to allow. Uh, as the, the hardest sell will be persuading the Nigerian public to let these people back into, into polite society. And, and I understand that. But I think it's, I think, I don't know if ITP disagree with me or not, but I think it's the imperative. Um, well, I've seen efforts to reintegrate people coming, um, especially from the safe corridor in Gombe, which is what the Nigerian military is doing. Um, suspects, for, um, pe people who have been um, previously in towns, you know, in caliphates of Boko Haram and are now coming back to camps, we see a lot of stigmatization, which is justifiable. People are not willing to have them reintegrated, and we understand their fear. But without that dialogue, I don't think we can move forward. It's very important to also realize that a lot of them were recruited involuntarily. So uh, I've seen a, a lot of dialogues, but I agree with you. I am not as optimistic that it will happen very soon. It will take years of reconciliation and you know healing and just that dialogue for it to continue before we see any kind of change i'm hoping you know i'm really hoping but you know we're not that optimistic why don't we go out for another round of questions on the gentleman uh, right there yeah uh thank you i'm leon weinshaw a retired member of the foreign service um i'd like to ask about about the garrison villages uh, I'm old enough here that I can remember the strategic hamlets in Vietnam. I see some head shaking there. And I'm wondering, from the strategic hamlet concept in Vietnam, uh, the populations were encouraged or coerced into settling in, in what became a strategic hamlet. The countryside was kind of abandoned, and whoever was not in the hamlet, you were in a free fire zone. Uh, and I'm wondering, 
is the what, what use of, is, uh, is the Nigerian military making of these villages, and what happens to the, the, the surrounding areas? Anyone on the panel want to tackle that? I think they're as successful for the Nigerians as they were for us. Yeah, I mean, there was an article just uh, today or yesterday uh, about the super, so there's the garrison camps and the super camps, but I mean, they're, they're leaving, you know, the rest of Nigeria exposed and Boko is having free range. This was the New Yorker, New York Times article as well sort of captured this. So, I mean, it didn't work for us and it didn't work in Vietnam. I don't know why that we would apply it in Nigeria. Hi, I'm Deirdre Lupin. Um, I lived in Nigeria and worked in various capacities for 18 in the last 50 years. So I've seen the country in many phases, and uh, first during a period of relative prosperity and peace, and now the current situation. And I wanted to ask the group here, what uh, of all of the issues that they've raised, what do you think has been most affected by the tremendous decline in the economy of a country and the level of personal income and welfare. Yeah, I can I can talk a little bit about this. I mean, I think that there is there is a sort of story there about kind of general economic malaise, but I think the real action here is with inequality, right? I like to tell people that Nigeria is a country where Jay-Z and Beyonce come to give concerts, where people fly to London and own real estate. And it's also northeastern Nigeria, right? Like that that level of inequality and the nature of the Nigerian political system has really made solidarity among people who have not benefited from the kind of prosperity that has become available to a sort of internationally mobile Nigerian elite. It's made it very hard for them to sort of come together and see the political commonalities that do exist, right? So you continue to see political movements that mobilize along regional or ethnic or religious lines rather than something of the sort of old style from the 60s because there were some very interesting leaders who never really had a full chance to try this all the way out in the 60s to sort of speak to the possibility of a Nigerian sense of solidarity around class, right? Um, there are some interesting people today who are starting to think about this from what is what there is of the Nigerian left. Um, but I, I think that is the fundamental story about the failure of the Nigerian elite to come up with a workable solution and to make the political commitment to addressing the Boko Haram conflict is this sort of absence of a, a way for people to see themselves in the experiences of what's happening in the, nor in, in the Northeast. I'd like to also add that um, when I was growing up in our neighborhood, um, I used to see, you know, Muhammad Yusuf preaching, and I noticed, you know, a lot of people flocking to his preachings at the time. And I recall um, listening to an audio, and he sounded enraged, you know, and he had a list of people who he felt were not just in their governing style. And a lot of that appealed to young people because they were poor and they had a lot of resentment and distrust for the government. So that, you know, you know, social inequalities, the lack of infrastructure, that rage just continues. It's not just the decline of the economy in current times, but even before all of this, there was this continued, you know, decline and people not trusting the government. And just the, the social inequalities, I feel the governmental lack of government presence in local communities is just the main problem. 
Ms. Fati, let's go to uh, another question. Uh, Ma'am, right here in front. Sure. Hi, I'm Paula Olson, uh, International Medical Corps. So I just got back uh, from a trip to my degree about two and a half weeks ago, where I was um, just looking at our programs and uh, supervising what we do there. And um, so I wanted to ask a question about kind of what's happened with cultural norms and the opportunities that have kind of been given way with the humanitarian response, both the lack of governance and um, how that's kind of leading to this change in, in the stated. And I'll, and I'll give an anecdote uh, that was very interesting. Um, I was in uh, Bakasi IDP camp and I was talking to some of the women that we uh, work with for protection issues. And uh, I asked the question, uh, just out of curiosity, what does dating look like now? in the camp, because uh, I was there now and I was there three years ago and, and my degree has changed uh, tremendously in the last three years. And um, they kind of laughed a little bit and said, well, dating and marriage has shifted a lot. It, now a man will ask, uh, what kind of humanitarian cards, what kind of food assistance cards do you hold before you get married? And that's actually driven up divorce rates in some of these camps um, as a result of that food assistance running out. So. Uh, that was incredibly interesting, and when I went to some of the other camps, I asked similar questions like, "How is dating? How is you know? How are these cultural norms where marriage has be, is so important?" Um, so it just seems that uh, you know there's this influence of the humanitarian community. There's definitely um, you know the the security issues that we're having that are contributing to this like breakdown of, of cultural norms. How is that making Boko Haram more attractive? Maybe. Um, if at all, and uh, the other question is, is um, you know, it seems like uh, when we look at food assistance programs where women are kind of showing up to receive that food assistance, there's more decision making happening with women um, in their households. So it seems like these opportunities are actually giving way to to different type of state. Um, so just a question of uh, any reflection on that and and those kind of changing norms. Thank you. I think probably a lot of people on the panel. Uh, have, may have thoughts. Daphna? Sure. I'll just start on the women and children because this has been both a finding in our research and a finding in our programs that, first of all, there's a vulnerability. Women are being recruited as well into Boko Haram, right? Everyone knows that, and youth. So there's a real, I think in the beginning, the humanitarian response saw the women and youth as maybe kind of not as, and not as vulnerable to recruitment, and I think it's really key, and we are doing this, and I think a lot of our peer organizations are shifting to understanding the ways in which the women have to be empowered in order to avoid their desperation that might lead to a recruitment. So that's one thing that's happened um, in addition to the, the protection and the, um, the protection of the women against the kind of abuse that comes when they're not holding the cash cards. Um, so, so that, I think that's changed for the better in the humanitarian response and adaptation and evolution and understanding that food security cash has to be taking into account these cultural changes. Um, so that's the opposite of your question. You asked how we are changing the culture, but I think we have been changed by, um, by the changing norms. Um, I wanted to add that, you know, the influx, of course, of um, humanitarian aid workers, especially from the West, is sort of appealing to young women. They're seeing a different way of life, and that, of course, is shifting the cultural norms. And also, because 
previous they, so many men were killed that a lot there we have more widows at this moment in time and a lot of women have become breadwinners and um, I what I see happening is a lot of men feeling emasculated and that sort of brings resentment and which is why we have the divorce rates they were previously in the power roles and are no longer in capable of taking care of their families and now the woman has the say and we're seeing a slow rise in feminism as well especially on social media I know an activist who is getting a lot of backlash because she is saying marriage is not an achievement. This is a community that previously tells you this is what this is what you work towards, even after education. I personally have been told that I don't need another degree as I'm getting my third one, and you are told you have no respect because you're not married. So imagine going from the 40s straight into 2019. That's how it feels for a lot of the men. So there's that feeling of why am I no longer you know, the, the man of the house? Women are wearing the pants in the relationship. So you see that cultural shift and how they're struggling to adjust. And well, <laughs> personally, I think it's a good thing, but they're struggling. <laughs> <laughs> So one point that I like to make when I, when I talk about the conflict with a room full of practitioners is that, well, just let me ask, how many of you were in northern Nigeria regularly before 20, 2009? A couple people, right? But mostly not a lot of folks. And for people who were around earlier, and Fatih knows this even better than I do, it's not the case that northern Nigeria was northern Mali, that there was a, some sort of vast ungoverned expanse where the government wasn't doing anything, where you know nothing functioned, where everybody was completely poor and impoverished. I mean, northeastern Nigeria was not an easy place to get by, but you find people who went to the University of Maiduguri in the 80s or 90s, and you talk to them about the experience of being in Maiduguri. And it's very, very different. There is a lived memory of a time when things were not so bad in northeastern Nigeria. And as much as things have changed in the last 10 or 15 years, and they have changed tremendously, it is not the case that people can't sort of look back at a time when things were functioning differently. And so I think it will be very interesting. I don't have answers to this, but I think it will be very interesting to see if the security situation does, in fact, improve. And you see little bits and pieces of this. I read a really interesting story about how student culture at the University of Maiduguri is sort of coming back around in some ways, right? As the security situation gets better, what will things end up being like? Will we just sort of have a continuation of what things have been like for the last four or five years? Or will be, there be an effort to return to something like what people remember as normalcy from 15 or 20 years ago? I don't know, but I, th I think that's a thing that sometimes gets lost in our memory of how much things have changed very recently. Okay, we tend to privilege uh, questions in the front of the room, so let's do someone in the back. I see a gentleman right next to you, yes. Uh, thank you, Nathaniel Nyok. I want to know, for almost 17 years now, Boko Haram has had a sustained operation in Nigeria and many other countries around the area, like Niger, the Cameroon, and Chad. Where does Boko Haram get its support, financial and military? The second question to my sister, you talk about the rise of vigilante groups. Are these vigilante groups part of any counter-insurgency uh, groups or policy that is recognized by the government and the international community, or just individuals willing to risk their life to protect the vulnerable population? Thank you. Right, Brandon, you did a little of this in the beginning. So is there anything you want to add about sort of the resiliency of BOCO? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we know a lot but not everything about the answers to these questions. And the, the short answer is that it has changed a lot over the last 17 years, right? That we can periodize pretty clearly different sort of moments in time where the the group that is sort of colloquial, colloquially called Boko Haram has got money from different places. Um, in a different audience, I would say, well, what you need to not do is sort of get involved in the conspiracy theorizing that you'll often hear in northeastern Nigeria about how, you know, there's like secret government sponsors or, you know, sort of other ways in which elites are funneling money to the group. There were moments in their mid-2000s where there probably were folks in Maiduguri who were pretty well off, who were sort of giving money to Yusuf's group and, and, and in other ways were sort of strategically allied with it. But the answer, I think, today is pretty straightforward, and a lot of you know it already. There are lots of ways that an armed insurgency in northeastern Nigeria can make money, through taxation, through um, involvement in trade, through taking it from communities, right? Previously to that, it was bank robberies and smuggling, and it sort of evolved over time. Um, but you don't need all that much money to run an insurgency of the size of Boko Haram either. And that's been sort of a persistent thing that I think people have lost track of. It's not like you need hundreds or even tens of millions of dollars to do what, what's happening right now. I'll say on the, on the weapons side, um, most of it's either stolen or purchased from the Nigerian army or the security services. Yep. JTF. Um, well, the civilian JTF just, you know, started in the beginning like a neighborhood watch, like I said, but they were uh, very soon recognized by the government. They enrolled in a government program that gives them salaries, and they're also being trained by the Nigerian military. However, in, uh, of course, the Nigerian military is cautious in the sense that these are just young people who they, the civilian JTF is advocating for them to have access to arms, but the Nigerian army thinks that is dangerous. These are young people who could end up being trigger happy. So they are aligned with the state and the Nigerian government, but there's caution in the sense that they will not be armed, but they are being trained in ways in which, in other strategic ways in which they can continue. There's the hunters also outside of the vigilante who the Nigerian military goes to villages with because they know the terrain, and most of them have grown up in that lifestyle. So we see that collaboration and personally, I'm happy with how it is going. The caution is necessary, and they're also very crucial in the fight against these insurgents. Yeah, there's a there's a, a wonderful report from the International Crisis Group a couple years ago about uh, vigilantism in in Africa and and how it's a double-edged sword. And Nigeria has a uh, ignoble history of vigilante groups starting from, as Fatih said, a, a, a genuine uh, uh, drive for rein, rein, restoring law and order. But whether we're talking about the Bakasi boys or the Hizbah in Kano, uh, they tend to be hijacked by politicians or the money that you are getting uh, tends to distort your objectives. And so I think that there's a real important caution uh, about their utility. Um, and the more local they are, and, and, and focused on very narrow objectives with cultural uh, connections back to the community, the better they are than being sort of seen as an auxiliary force uh, to, to supplement and complement the Nigerian army. Why don't we do another question? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, back to the front. Uh, my name is Mindy Reiser. I'm vice president of an NGO called Global Peace Services USA. A question about Islam and Boko Haram and that core cadre, maybe 10% that was alluded to. 
What do they do, if anything, in terms of teaching aspects of Islam? Um, are they themselves observant? What are they doing with the younger people who have some interest in the tradition? And do they turn to the Quran? I, I want to know where they are in terms of the Islamic world and how they reference it. This is a particularly difficult question. <laughs> who wants uh, who wants to try first, uh, Brandon? I, I, I'll take first crack at it. I, I suspect the ambassador has some things to add. Um, I mean, the long story short is my, my colleague Alex Thurston at the University of Cincinnati has written a couple of books about the ideology of Boko Haram that are very informative. And what he finds is that essentially the leadership of Boko Haram since the early 2000s are, I mean, they're, they're Salafis. They come out of a particular kind of Salafi tradition in northern Nigeria um, that is influenced by kind of the global evolution of that discourse. Um, they become increasingly interested in, in violence against the state at a certain point in the mid to late 2000s. Um, they are part of a global conversation about those issues, um, but one that was never especially popular among ordinary northern Nigerians. We don't have a good sort of count on how many people in northern Nigeria practice very, or sort of ally themselves with various different um, versions or iterations of the faith, but it is an incredibly devout society, obviously. Um, but that that message that Yusuf and his initial followers were spreading did not seem to have it had some resonance and obviously attracted followers. But you know we're talking about 10 million Muslims who live in Borno State and five or 10,000 people in Yusuf's group, so that gives you some sense of the reach. Um, since then, what little evidence we do have suggests that um, at least in, in areas that, that, that Iswa or Boko Haram control or in camps where they have people who've been abducted or otherwise sort of um, coerced into participation, that they do offer religious lessons, that they do offer interpretation and, and preach. Um, if you watch the, the videos that the group produces or videos that have been captured um, that depict the group's daily life, it is quite obvious that they understand themselves to be devout Muslims. Um, but that the, the specific message that they spread has varying degrees of resonance across northern Nigeria. It, it, it is, what, what, they are, what they are offering or preaching is not the mainstream or there's not like a, a, a secret cadre of lots and lots of northern Nigerian imams who are sort of secretly nodding their heads and going along. There's an interesting thing that happened in the mid-2000s, but in general, the, the, the bulk of Salafi-aligned imams, but also Sufi-aligned imams and other imams across northern Nigeria speak out loudly and frequently about their dislike of, of Boko Haram's ideology. I think, as I stated in the beginning, his style began with the Islamic preachings in the mosque, and that was what attracted the communities because they viewed him as an Islamic scholar, but the style started changing in the sense that there was that rage that I spoke about and pinpointing certain politicians. So when it gets political, the um, local communities start to you know, detect some sort of uh, resentment in a way. And what, during my, I've done a lot of interviews with people who have lived with them and they say that it started changing for me when they said we should go and kill this person. So they start with the Islamic preaching, teaching you the Quran, but then I've interviewed 13-year-olds uh, who said, and I've actually photographed a lot of these regions where they gave their teachings. There, there's a wall where they teach them you know, how to shoot a gun and what to do when the Nigerian military comes in. So there are planes on the wall, etc., how to dodge all these bullets. So at a point, 
people leave because of those things. So it starts shifting from the, the peaceful style of preaching that we're used to in our communities straight into this violence and uh, killings and destruction. So that's the difference, I would say. I, w I would just add that, you know, I think the way that Fatih and, and Bran have talked about sort of an evolution in the way in which they've interpreted Islam, but uh, Shakal, the, the current leader of Boko Haram, I think more than Youssef or others, has such an exclusionist sort of view, and, and, and Alex Thurston has written about this. Uh, you know, it's, it's different than uh, ISIS West Africa that I think is trying to win hearts and minds, even in a, more of a limited scale. Mm -hmm. uh, but Shakal's vision is, you know, it's, it's this or nothing. And, uh, and, and, and very willing to remove, uh, destroy, kill people who are not subscribing to that. I, I don't see him as much prophetizing in the way that Yusef did, or even I think parts of ISIS West Africa do. I don't know, Alex or Daphne, if you have thoughts on this. I mean, political power in the far north of Nigeria, as far as I know, has always been uh, interlinked and legitimized by religious authority. So if you want to contest political power, you contest religious legitimacy. And, and I think Alex Thurston documents this from the Metatsane movement of the late 80s through the anti-Sufic uh, Izala movement uh, of the 90s, uh, and then Muhammad Yusuf's initial flirtation with Salafism, and then his break uh, with the Salafis in, in northeastern Nigeria. But also the fact that when Sharif Ali Modi was running for governor of Borno State, he ran on a pro-Sharia uh, platform. And when he was elected, he appointed Muhammad Yusuf as the head of the Islamic court system uh, of Borno State. So there's always been this interplay of politics and religion uh, in, particularly in, North, in northern Nigeria, particularly in northeastern Nigeria. So I make less of the religious dogma. And I, I think certainly the United States government intel community has gotten sidetracked on hair splitting of uh, fairly obscure Islamic theological points that some of us find fascinating, uh, but sort of misleading here. I mean, I think this is a, this is a contest uh, for, for, for political power. It's a resource competition, and it happens to be taking place under the vernacular uh, of Islam. As far as I know, Muhammad Yusuf was a very well-respected Quranic scholar who had memorized the, the Quran and who was also famous for the, and I, I lived in Germany for the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, so I was always struck that one of Yusuf's calling cards was he could do Quranic exegesis in Kanuri. He could do off-the-cuff Quranic translations into Kanuri, whereas the language of the Friday sermon had always been Hausa. And I think of that as a revolutionary political act akin to Luther saying, I'm, I'm, we're going to, okay, we'll pray in Arabic, but we're going to do the Friday sermons in Kanuri. And I, I, that, more than theology, to me, explains the resiliency of the Boko phenomenon. Uh, also, like uh, Martin Luther, they, uh, my understanding is that Boko, particularly in the early 2000s, were pinning uh, sermons on doors. Also right. fairly anti-Semitic. <laughs> <laughs> OK, uh, I think we have time for just a couple more questions. So why don't we do a group of them this time? So we'll do one, two, three. Hi, uh, Kara Jones, ORB International. Um, hi, Brandon, how are you? <laughs> I have a couple questions for all of you, especially about the Kanori identity. And this is really interesting and fascinating, especially looking at how Boko has operated in Cameroon and Niger and even Chad to some extent. But to what extent is Kanori identity a recruitment te technique or strategy as well as a con uh, contagion technique as well, right? We're Kanori, you should do what we're doing look at how successful it's been for us, especially when thinking about like the problem in DIFA in particular, and then the current uh, ongoing conflict in Cameroon. 
we'll take them together and then the panelists can grab the questions they want. Hi, uh, Nathan Hostler, I work for the Church of the Brethren, direct the Washington office. Um, there's about a million Church of the Brethren members in northern Adamama, southern Borno State. Uh, and I was in communication with one of the leaders earlier this week and he noted, for example, uh, in the last few weeks there are about 20 villages displaced in the Lhasa Chibok area and that there was no uh, communication about this in any news sources, whether print or electronic. So it raises a question which we've talked about previously. How much of this uh, inability to get information out is uh, simply a logistical problem? These are very remote places. And how much has been an intentional government policy or practice in an, in an effort to not allow the, the continuing um, crisis to be um, fully addressed or known? Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Ann Reiner, and many of you spoke about sort of the politicization of the conflict, but I'm interested in your take on the politicization and co-optation of the humanitarian aid um, of the government, frequently declaring Boko Haram defeated, and then picking people up from Maiduguri, moving them into these camps where they say that everything is fine, life is back in nor to normal, and then they turn around to the humanitarian community and say, if they have no food, they have no water, they have no health care, you need to respond. And then the humanitarian community has to decide, do we bring the response to people who don't have any of these services and incentivize the government to continue doing this or to de-incentivize the government from continuing not bring services to people who are now in need because the government has put them there. Okay, so let's um, maybe start with Daphna and we'll just kind of walk our way over to Brandon and just pick the questions that you have an answer for. Um, it's a complicated question and I want to give you as straight an answer as I can reflecting the fact that there's you know hundreds and hundreds of humanitarian workers across Northeast Nigeria and our team is one of many and so I can't I don't want to generalize in any way um, as I said before there's a tense but but working relationship with the military between the humanitarians and the military there are access issues there are gaps in information as you mentioned and that's something that we try to address because we find that very problematic sometimes we don't know and we have to collect our own information on what's going on um, but one way we've dealt with the challenges that you've explicitly identified of the sort of politicization of the movement of people is to insist on the, the recovery that I mentioned earlier, right? So in addition to just the basic relief, we're adamant that we're going to tie people to a livelihood system because that's the way to both provide the humanitarian relief but also rebuild the communities. Um, so for example, one thing we're doing, and this is just a little anecdote, but I think it gets at these issues, is we're trying to retrain some folks who've been taken off uh, the ability to access their farms um, and retraining them in chicken raising, poultry raising, which requires smaller spaces and can be done in their displaced location. Uh, and it's actually working in some of the areas to create new basic markets and livelihoods. Uh, so we recognize the strategic imperatives and the, and the politicization of the movement of people, and yet we feel, and I think most of the humanitarians there feel, that we need to respond. Um, so. I think Mercy Corps' groundbreaking study a few years ago looked at 85 or 86 former members of Boko Haram and asked the question, well, why did you join this organization? And the, and the finding was, was, was surprising. The, the finding was most joined because of economic opportunity, uh, access to microfinance, Boko bought me a motor scooter or whatever. Um, and theology was not, was not cited uh, as the basis for joining. And ethnic, ethno-linguistic grievance was not cited as a basis for joining. Fast forward 
four years or three and a half years in subsequent studies found a sea change in why people were joining Boko Haram, and the most often cited reason was grievance against the state. Uh, you know, the, the military killed my father, the police disappeared my brother, uh, et cetera. And I think in that second category is where you see uh, the aggrieved sense of Kanuri Buduma uh, identity at play. And, and you know, the, I had to remind my American colleagues that, my military colleagues, that you know, the, the Kanem Borno Empire and then the Borno Caliphate was a cohesive polity from around about the 9th century to the early 20th century. Uh, and the Kanuri historical narrative is the lake is ours, and we are the unconquered people of the region, and we are the, we are the civilizers of the region. We were the land bridge between the Islamic uh, north uh, and the Sahel, and Islam, hence civilization, came into uh, this area thanks to us, and the, 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 the Hausa and the Fulani are, are inferior to us as a result of this. These are very strong narratives that I think uh, Muhammad Yusuf began to uh, articulate, and I think to the extent that, I, that we have any insight on him, I think Abu Musab al-Barnawi uh, very skillfully wove into, into his pitch. I, I don't think uh, Shakao dabbled in, in, these, in these narratives, but I think the, the Barnawi faction of Boko, I think this was a, a, a key component of their identity as an organization and a movement. I don't know, Brandon, is that plausible, accurate, wrong? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'll turn to Fatih, but I, I just, I think we should, I don't disagree with what Alex said, but I think we should be mindful about make, making two pointed of a analysis of this being a Kanuri organization, Mohammed Noor, who we think is now deceased, but he's a Shua Arab, uh, and he was the number two to al-Barnawi. I mean, they've had commanders who are Hausa Fulani. So while there may be a core identity that's Kanuri, it doesn't mean that they don't recruit and haven't had senior leaderships in other ethnic groups in northern Nigeria. And it, you know, whether it's been an attack in Kano or particularly their expansion into the Middle Belt, uh, into Kogi State during the 2012, 13, 14 period, I think it, if we limit it to a Kanuri organization, I think we miss some of the times in which they are been able to expand and contract. Say, I didn't say an organization, I said a grievance vehicle. Not quite the same. Okay, but my point being is that, like, we off, let's be careful about just calling it a Kanuri, you know, a Kanuri, giving it a little more broader of a appeal at times. Well, I'd like to start by saying I am Kanuri. And well, there you go. <laughs> well, you have no place in this conversation. <laughs> no, you do have a place, but what I'm saying is there's a stigma attached to being Kanuri because of Boko Haram, so that Kanuri identity conversation um, hurts me <laughs> and also kind of makes me also acknowledge the fact that uh, the Kanem Borno Empire has um, segregated other groups, like the Kanu is the dominant group in Borno State, and even now there, w there is no governor, only a Kanuri man can be a governor. Women are not even considered, and then other ethnic groups, be, other ethnic groups become deputy governor. So that sort of marginalization has created grievances. People, other ethnic groups have grudges against us. That is what I've seen. But in terms of recruitment, I, recently someone told me that an American TV show, one of those crime shows, I don't know if it's, I don't know what it's called, but there was a Boko Haram scene, and the guy, uh, the man who was uh, the terrorist, had the Kanuri tribal marks, and I remember being offended by that because to say it, it, they were attaching the Kanuri identity to Boko Haram, obviously there are all kinds of ethnic groups in it, and I think it's, it's a dangerous stereotype to carry along. Terrorism, I think, ha is, is an individual in a way, not a race or an ethnic group, so that's sort of... Um, 
Uh, but I acknowledge that um, a lot of ethnic groups felt marginalized, and during the recruitment of Boko Haram, so many joined because they had grievances against the country. That I have heard in so many interviews I've done of different people who um, gave their reasons for joining, and they wanted to attack that um, sort of segregation that they felt. So by way of sort of wrapping the first two questions together a little bit, let me just say that I I'm often struck by the fact that both kind of internationally engaged actors and many Nigerians who don't live in northeastern Nigeria often overestimate the social homogenousness of northeastern Nigeria. There are a lot of people who are not Kanuri in northeastern Nigeria who are nonetheless indigenous to the region. There are lots of people who are Christian in northeastern Nigeria and who are indigenous to the region. The size of the indigenous communi Christian community in northeastern Nigeria um, was something that I didn't even fully understand until I started working on my most recent book. And I'm happy to say that we have a section on indigenous Christians in northern northeastern Nigeria and how they've been impacted by the conflict, because I think it's not well understood by sort of representations of Nigeria as sort of having a northern Muslim community and a Christian southern community because they are very distinctive, that northeastern Christian community. Um, in terms of Ambassador Lascaris' comments, right? I am less persuaded that Kanuri identity plays a big role in recruitment in Boko Haram and, and Iswa in large part because I don't think we have a lot of evidence um, of that sort of direct actualization of that. We don't have a lot of sort of examples of people saying, come join us because we share this common identity, um, which is not to say that it's never happened. It's just that we don't have a ton of information about it. Um, but that, that sort of diversity of the region it, Fatih sort of alluded to this as well. There are these historical distinctions between Kanuri populations and non-Kanuri populations and historical grievances that go back to relations of peripheral slave raiding um, within, the, within the Bornu Empire um, you know, in the 19th century. There's the history of kind of the, these rapacious states that emerge at the beginning of the colonial era, um, like Rabe. Uh, and, and I think in Northern Cameroon in particular, and I, I've spent some time in Northern Cameroon and, and think of it very fondly. Um, it is clearly not the case that Iswa and, and Shikau's group are understood as, as um, sort of Kanuri in perhaps the same way that they might be in Meduguri. I'm not sure that they are in Meduguri either, but that they might be. And that one of the things that is striking is that the research that I've seen and that I've done a little bit of, um, Marwa and Points North, suggests that economic um, incentives have played a larger role in recruitment into violence in, in Northern Cameroon than they have even in other parts of, of the conflict zone, precisely because perhaps there are not quite as many other ways to get people to engage. Now, with the respect of kind of how things get question of how things get reported and what gets paid attention to. I mean, I, I think I would not be surprising anybody if I said, look, encounters between the military and insurgents get recorded better and are reported more accurately in eventually at least, um, once we sort of get into the fight between what's reported by journalists and what's reported by the Nigerian military, then, then sort of displacements of, of local communities. Um, I think in large part you can understand that a little bit in terms of the fact that the people who cover these issues um, for the national Nigerian and international press maybe don't understand, for example, the size of the indigenous Christian community in northeastern Nigeria or precisely where they're clustered or located, but that it also very much is the case that the capacity for reporting on kind of smaller issues that aren't sort of military in nature is not as good as it needs to be to have a full accounting in the press of what happens. I think that the Nigerian press does an incredible job of picking up a lot of what's going on. I have a lot of respect for the international reporting that comes out of northeastern Nigeria. I often find it to be nuanced and, and really well done. Um, 
but it gets inevitable in a space that is as large as that, that is as diverse as that, and is as complicated as that, that some things are not going to be as well served by that. And I think there's a decent case to be made. Uh, I don't want to sort of stretch it out into Christians are, a, you know, the main target of violence by, by Boko Haram. That's how it sometimes gets picked up um, by, by movements in the United States. I don't think that that's necessarily a good way to think about it either. But that it is clear that, for example, indigenous Christian communities in northeastern Nigeria um, don't receive the attention that perhaps they might, given the extraordinarily level, high level of violence that they faced in the region. Thanks, Brandon. Well, I think this was a phenomenal session. Um, I'm really pleased with how complex of a picture that we presented today, your questions, our panel speakers. Uh, I think we can agree that the government approach has been problematic, but they are part of the solution. Uh, I think everyone talked about how we have to think about how to work with the Nigerian government, uh, how to address some of its structural challenges, but there's livelihood issues that we need to address, thinking about local agency and bringing the politics back into the solution I think are also critical. Let me thank the uh, CSAS uh, program, the Humanitarian Response Program, Agenda Program that uh, sponsored this and our panelists. Thank you.